Uh, today's reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 10 to 21. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are known is to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one heart has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who, might, or those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who their sake cries, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciled the world to himself, not, re not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All right, well, we're looking at um, uh, 2 Corinthians. I want to start by asking you a question. All right, what do you boast about? What, what, what do you personally brag about? Or, or, or what, what do people generally boast about? Okay, now you might fire back and say, hey, I don't boast about anything. Other people might do that, but I don't which if you think about it, might just be a brag itself, mightn't it? Okay, you might just be boasting about not boasting. Okay, but why do any of us, even, even just occasionally, drop in a sort of a humble brag into the conversation? We do it because it makes us feel good, don't we? And we think that the person who he hears it will think better of us. It'll make it, us look good. Okay, we, if you think about it, we don't brag or boast about what everyone can do. I mean, you didn't, you didn't boast to your friend or to your partner this morning that, hey, I managed to put on both socks this morning, did you? Okay, now, if you're five years old, you might boast about that, but not if you are 50. Okay, we boast about stuff that we think sets us apart from the crowd, that we think gives us the edge over others, that makes us stand out, that others will look at and go, oh, wow, okay, good for you, kudos. And it could be stuff in your career. Um, it, could be, um, it could be something you've bought. It could be uh, something one, you know, if you've got kids, it could be something one of your kids has done. You, you brag to somebody else about what your kids are doing. Okay, whatever it is, you bring it up in conversation because we think it reflects well on us. And if you think about it, it is nearly always, not always, but nearly always something tangible. Okay, something that can be seen. 
I mean, if someone wants to brag about their love of fine art because they think that reflects well on them, what will they do? They'll show you that expensive painting that they've bought. Or if they want to brag about their intellectual sophistication because they think that makes them look good, they will tell you about the books that they are currently reading. Something tangible, something that you can see. And there is a, the reason I'm telling you this is there is a group of leaders in Corinth who are doing just this. They are bragging and boasting about external stuff. Maybe it's their great speaking ability. Maybe it's the, um, maybe it's the influential people that they know or the crowds that they draw or the churches that they've planted. Paul says in verse 12, they are those who boast about outward appearance. Now, if you think about it, the problem is that Christianity, maybe above all other religions, is not about outward appearance. And true greatness, what makes someone truly great or not, is not you know, the number of churches they've planted, or for you academics, the number of papers you have published, or for you in the business world, the number of organizations you have led. What makes somebody truly great or not is their character. It's not just what they do, but why they do it. And the stuff Paul calls in verse 12, what is in the heart? Heart stuff. And so Paul wants to give these Christians in Corinth the ammunition that they need to defend genuine Christian ministry, and in the process defend Paul, and to critique these leaders who are boasting in the external stuff. And it's interesting how Paul does it, okay, because he does it not just by telling them what he does, his mission, or even just why he does it, his motivation, he does it by telling us why the Christian message matters at all, why it matters for you, why it matters for me, and why it alone can give you the confidence and the inner sense of self-worth that kills your need to brag or boast. First point then, mission. What does Paul do? Look at verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, as we saw last week, okay, I'm just going to repeat it. Paul is not suggesting that if you are a Christian, that you should live in fear of being condemned at the last judgment. As Paul is going to say again in this passage, Christ was condemned for us. And so as we put our trust in him, we don't appear before him for condemnation. We appear before him to give an account for what we have done with all of those good gifts and abilities and skills that he has given us. We're going to give an account for what we have done with his good gifts. Because resurrection day will be reward day. And yet, look at verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing the fear of the Lord. Now, if you think about it, today, we have, you know, you know, maybe this is true for us, certainly true out there in the wider world. We have tended to reduce God down to a friend. So someone who peps us up if we're feeling down. 
We've reduced him to a therapist or a counsellor, but a non-directive counsellor. A counsellor who listens and consoles, but never tells us that we're wrong. And yet the Bible presents us with a very different picture of God, that God is high and lifted up, and that he is altogether different from us, that he's holy. It tells us that all power belongs to him, that he is in all places at all times, and you cannot escape from him, that he knows you and sees you to the bottom. And it tells us that you are to worship him and to give him your allegiance as your heavenly king. So the God of the Bible is very different from the 21st century pocket God. He is a God who we rightly fear in awe and wonder. A God who is so worthy of our love that we fear to sin against him. As Psalm 2 says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Okay, but the Bible is also clear that for those who think, hey, come on, judgment, last day judgment, that's primitive. There's no, that's not going to happen. Or who think, hey, I'm living a pretty good life. I think I can get through that. You know, he'll be pleased to have me on his team. For such people like that, Paul is saying the final judgment really is something to be feared, which is why he says what he says in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, or as another Bible translation puts it, because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others. Now, for those of us who were um, on the church retreat earlier on in the year, you know, we saw leadership sometimes, maybe often, can be self-serving, can't it? I mean, even seemingly good desires for us to grow in our effectiveness as a leader, you know, to maximize others' potential. If you drill down on that, if you dig deeper on that, what you discover is that it may be less about other people's success and making them more successful, but rather their success reflecting well on me, that actually, fundamentally, it's about my success or the company's success. Leadership can often be self-serving. And these new leaders in Corinth, they're also working hard to persuade others. If Paul says he's working hard to persuade others, but they're also working, to persuade, uh, other, working hard to persuade others, but to persuade them of how amazing they are as leaders and how the Corinthians really ought to ditch Paul and follow them. But Paul and his team, they are working hard to persuade people about what? About the truth of the gospel. And notice it's to persuade them, not batter them. It's to persuade them, not manipulate them. Because he tells us two things about the way he does it. Firstly, he does it with integrity, verse 11 again. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. Now, one of the outcomes of um, uh, social media is that there have, been an, there have been a number of celebrities over the past few years, haven't there, who have carefully cultivated 
their public image. But then their mask slips just for a few, you know, just for a few seconds, and they say something, or they, de- or they do something that reveals what they really think or what they're really like. And they're left scrambling to try and undo the damage. You know, that, that, that doesn't reflect the real me. The hard truth is it does reflect the real them. And Paul is saying, look, as I seek to persuade you about Jesus, I am not one thing in private and another thing in public. There's, there's no hypocrisy. There's no carefully cultivated image. My life is open before the God who I am going to have to give an account to. You see, Paul knows what Robert, Robert Murray McChain, the Scottish pastor, knew. What a man is on his knees before God, that he is, and nothing more. Okay, so let me ask you this morning, do you spend more time cultivating the external or the internal? Do you personally spend more time cultivating how others see you, the external, or the internal, your character, who you are in private before God? And what would you, if you recognize that that is askew, that that balance is wrong, what do you, think about what you need to do to begin to correct that. Okay, but secondly, Paul seeks to persuade people by making a rational case for the gospel. Verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Okay, so others might look at Paul and think, you believe a man rose from the dead? You are crazy. Okay, that is bonkers. You're out of your mind. And Paul says, that's not crazy. That's God. And when we try and persuade you and others and show you how the gospel makes sense, not just of life but of your heart, we are absolutely in our right minds. Now, I don't know all of you here here this morning, but maybe you're here and you are not yet a Christian, or or maybe you are a Christian, but you you also struggle with doubts about the faith. Okay, I want to ask you, do you leave those doubts hanging? Or do you seek answers to those doubts? Because Paul is saying that for those who humble themselves, who have ears to hear, the gospel fundamentally makes sense. So seek its answers. Okay, but if that is Paul's mission, that's what he does, why does he do it? Okay, why try and persuade others of the truth of the gospel? And why do that from a position of integrity? Second point then, motivation. Okay, mission motivation. Why does he do what he does? And in another letter in Philippians, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul describes what he used to be proud of, the stuff he used to boast in, the stuff that used to make him feel good about himself. And what was it? It was his racial and ethnic, racial ethnic background as a Jew and his moral record. He was just better than other people, better racially, better ethnically, and better morally. He's just better than others. That's what makes him feel good about himself. 
Okay, but if you think about it, that is always the problem, isn't it? If you get your sense of self-worth from those kinds of things, you inevitably end up thinking that you are better than others and you end up looking down at them. At those who, because of their politics or their race or their lifestyle, you think are less worthy than you. And if you think they are threatening what you get your significance from, you know, as pre-Christian Paul did for these early Christians as they threatened his Jewish world, if you think these other people are threatening where you get your significance from, you will become hostile to them. Okay, so it, it would be no exaggeration to say that before Paul became a Christian, his life was increasingly dominated by the kind of hostility that flows out of moral and racial pride, even when that was clothed in respectable religion. All of that changed, didn't it? When Paul came face to face with the one who he was, gen who, the one he was really persecuting on the road to Damascus. And now he says, verse 14, now the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. I want you to think for a moment, what, what is it that controls you? What controls you? You see, what was it that drove Paul as a student, young guy, to study hard. Okay, what drove him to excel in rabbi school and come out at top of the class? It was exactly the same stuff that enabled him to see the murder of Stephen, a fellow Jew, and the first Christian martyr as a good thing and that drove him to persecute these Christians. It was his ethnic and his moral pride. That's what was controlling him in the past. Okay, so let me ask you again, what controls you? Okay, what drives your desire for academic or career success? What's the engine behind your pursuit of friendships or relationships? For those of us who are parents, what drives you wanting your kids to do well? If, if part of your job, maybe you're, you're a boss or a you know, professor or whatever, if part of your job entails, or, or a parent, okay, if part of your job entails persuading others, okay, bringing them to see what you see, what drives that? What drives you wanting them to see what you see? Or when you find yourself getting angry at people, what is behind that anger? What's being threatened? You see, if in the past it was his racial and moral pride that drove him, now, Paul says, his entire motivation for life has changed and his willingness to try and persuade others of the faith that he once tried to destroy and to do that with integrity is the love of Christ, that the one who he was persecuting loves him loves him, the proud religious hater. 
Now, I once took part in a, a joint service with another church where the minister described how Jesus, how you and I can know that Jesus loves us because Jesus came as the Lamb of God. And what are lambs? They're lovely and white and fluffy. And a lamb wouldn't hurt anyone. So we know Jesus loves us because he came as this lovely, soft lamb of God. Okay, that is not the kind of love that overturned Paul's pride, is it? Sentimentalism can never overturn pride. Jesus did come as the Lamb of God, but not to be fluffy, but to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Verse 14 again, one has died for all. And from that moment, Paul realized you, the one I have been persecuting, you loved me enough to die for me. And from that moment, his life was never the same again. Now, children who grow up in families where there is authoritative parenting, where they know the boundaries, and where they know that they are loved, come out more confident and more able to do life than those who come out of families where the parents are authoritarian, not authoritative, authoritarian, or careless, couldn't care less about how their kids behave, and with little love. Because if you think about it, knowing that you are loved deeply by someone whom you respect deeply just has this power to make you confident, doesn't it? But knowing you are loved deeply like that, when you also know that you don't deserve to be loved like that, also has the power to humble you deeply. And when Christ's love gets a hold of you, like it got hold of Paul, that confidence combined with that humility has the power to radically transform and influence every area of life. Third and last point then, transformation. Mission, motivation, transformation. Why the gospel matters to you? Why does the Christian message matter? Now, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and martyr, he criticized what he called cheap grace. This idea hey, God loves me, so I can live pretty much how I want to live. But in an individualistic culture like ours, that's an attractive argument, isn't it? Hey, g God loves me, so he'd never challenge the way that I see life or the way I want to do life. And just like people in the past thought that the sun revolved around the earth, we can think, Hey, life, the universe, and everything revolves around me. I'm the gravitational center, and God is a little satellite planet orbiting around me to do my will. Being captured by Christ's love totally upended that way of seeing life for Paul. Verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died 
and was raised. In other words, when it dawns on you, Christ loves me so much that he would die for me, his death becomes your death. Okay, not just, and I don't mean this dismissively, okay, not just that he died the death that we deserve, but that you die to your old life. You die to your old way of seeing life. And instead of living for yourself, you live for him. Instead of thinking that life revolves around you, you realize he's the gravitational center and your life is to revolve around him. You see, if we're honest, none of us like people, other people interfering in our lives, do we? We just resent that. We don't like other people telling us what we should do. It's the default of our fallen human natures. We see any outside imposition upon us as restrictive. And Paul says, yes, but when you are captured by Christ's love for you, you gladly surrender to him. Because you know if he loves me enough to die for me, everything he asks of me is going to be for my good. And so no area of obedience is off limits. There's no area of your life where you say, no, you can't go there, Jesus. That's no entry. Instead, you gladly submit your agenda to his. Okay, so the first thing is you stop living for yourself and you start living for him. Secondly, it changes how you see others and yourself. Verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Okay, think for a moment. How would pre-Christian Paul have viewed Jesus? I mean, he would have regarded him through the lens of his moral and racial pride, wouldn't he? That's what he saw everything through. So he would have seen Jesus as one born in sin, born out of wedlock an untrained, uneducated rabbi who mixed with undesirables and untouchables. He was a deceiver and a blasphemer who rightly died the death of one cursed by God because he was cursed by God. How much of that way of seeing Jesus was left after Paul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus? It was all left in the dust of the road, wasn't it? We once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. If you think about it, it's not just the old Paul who had this habit of regarding people according to external stuff. These new leaders in Corinth, they're doing just that. And if we are honest, we all do it. We evaluate people as worthy of our time or not based on their appearance on their academic level or academic attainment, on their position or their wealth. And Paul is saying when Christ's love takes a hold of you, it radically changes how you see others. You stop assessing Jesus on the purely human level and you stop assessing others on the purely external level. You stop seeing them either as someone unworthy of your time or as someone worthy of your time because they might be able to help you ascend the ladder or as somebody useful to you or you stop seeing them as a threat to your significance. Instead, 
instead you begin to see them as Christ sees them and you begin to treat them as Christ treated you with kindness and patience and grace. Okay, but knowing you are loved by Christ, you know, it, it, um, you'll live for him, it'll change the way you see others, but it'll also change the way you see yourself. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So when you put your trust in Christ, you are united by faith with him. You're in Christ. Jesus described it as being like you have been born again. You come alive almost for the first time, really for the first time, as part of God's new creation, which means you're not a part of the old world order anymore. Okay, that list of sins and failures that you can go over in your mind and crushes you and leaves you crippled with guilt, that's the old you, and it's gone. That old way of seeing the world you're better than those people over there. That's the old you, and that's gone. You are a new creation with a new heart and new desires and new loves. But that doesn't mean that your old desires and your old loves aren't going to rear their ugly heads. They will. But your old life is not what defines you now. You are in Christ and he has made you new, and he is making you new. So when, like a celebrity, you mess up, and you say something or do something that you shouldn't, unlike them, you really can say, that's not the real me, okay? Not because you're a hypocrite, but because it's the old you, and Christ loves you and has and is changing you. So change who you live for, change how you see others and how you see yourself. But third and final thing that being captured by Christ's love does for you is it takes you to the depths of what Christ has done for you. Verses 18 and 19. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. Now imagine a couple, a married couple, going for marriage counselling. And they are, they're sat on the counsellor's couch, and there are opposite ends of the couch, and they can barely even look at each other. What do those two people need? They need to be reconciled, don't they? Because they're alienated. Reconciliation is the mending of broken relationships. And the Bible tells us that alienation, that separation, is humanity's fundamental problem. That all of the horizontal stuff, all, all the enmity, all the discord, all the conflict is all a result of the breakdown in our vertical relationship with our heavenly king. And it's that breakdown that's as a result of our trespasses, our crossing of his good lines, and our rebellion against him. But that breakdown, that vertical breakdown, 
is also at the root of all of our personal problems, our inner problems, like the insecurity and the pride that's behind our boasting. You see, if you think about it, we boast or brag because we need to know that we're loved. We want to know that we're loved. We want to know that our lives count. We want to hear somebody say that, hey, good, well done, you're okay, that we're approved of. But when we are cut off from the love of our Heavenly Father, what do we do? We have to look for that love and affirmation elsewhere, don't we? So we go looking for it in things like career or relationships or family to give us that. But they never can. If things go well, they might make us proud. And if they don't go well, they'll make us insecure. What they can never give us is that confidence combined with humility that knowing you are loved by Christ can give you. And the extraordinary thing is, is that despite the breakdown in our relationship with God being 100% our fault, who initiates the reconciliation? God does. But he doesn't just make the first move. Though he is 100% innocent, in Christ he takes 100% of the blame upon himself. Verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And at the cross, the one who lived the perfect life that we always fail to live the one who never sinned, he took our sin upon himself and he became sin for us that we might take and become his righteousness. And Jesus was alienated from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That you might be reconciled to God. He bore the wrath of God that we might be captured by the love of God. As the English reformer Richard Hooker said, man hath sinned and God hath suffered. And because we have been reconciled to God, Paul says, we're to be reconcilers. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Maybe you recognize yourself in this, okay? These Corinthians were drifting because when you are assessing yourself and others through the lens of external stuff, like image or success or race or morality or politics, you are sliding from the gospel of God's grace and you will end up boasting about yourself or and or being hostile to others. Instead, Paul says, we have been reconciled to God through Christ. So live as those reconciled. Live knowing that you are loved by Christ and go out into the world and live for Christ. Let's pray.